1: That moment of terror, when you suddenly realise you've no longer got control, it is totally out of control and you're going to lose everything and it is going to spread and you don't know where it's going to end and that, that clenching terror is just... And I was at that point that I was... <gasps> you know, when you can hardly breathe. I rushed to the house. The one thing I could find the number for was the local store <laughs> Local like store. Someone picked up, yeah, hello. I said, I'm on fire. Call the fire call the brigade, I'm on fire, I need help, I need help. And and he couldn't hear me because he was still talking to the guy he was serving. And I realised he couldn't hear me and I'm screaming, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. And he's going, Hang on a minute, lover, just get it in a minute. And <laughs> he did this for about five minutes and I could hear the fire roaring and I'm screaming. And finally he picked it up. He said, Okay, what is it you wanted? I'm on
2: fire! <laughs> Today on Changemakers, our story is about the Australian bushfires. It's a two-part series, and in this episode, we're in Woolloombeye, a few hours north of Sydney, to cover a story that was kept away from the media spotlight at the time. It's a tale of the risky actions people took together to save their own communities. It's a cracking tale. Let's go. (laughs) I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. The interviews in today's episode were undertaken in January 2020 by our reporter Mark Isaacs, who also wrote the episode. Fire has a rich history in Australia. For 60,000 years, First Nations people used fire to manage the land. But with the arrival of white colonialists, Australia's relationship with fire changed. And over the past 200 years, Australia has had an increasingly fraught relationship with bushfires, which often rage uncontrolled. 2019 was the hottest and driest year in Australia on record. Even in August, before the end of winter, bushfires were burning out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner Greg Mullins. And the national emergency is climate change, and it's
3: driving natural disasters like these catastrophic bushfires. Hazard reduction um, has been very difficult to do because of climate change. So the narrowing of windows. We used to burn off a lot in winter. There's been up to a 25% reduction in winter rainfall, leaving it far too dry and dangerous. Winds are stronger, temperatures are higher. So we just can't burn off at times where we used to burn off. So that's the big issue. Climate change is making that harder. Um, And it's making the bushfires start earlier
2: in Mm. August instead of October and burn far more intensely. The devastation was global news. This from the BBC.
4: Day after day, fire crews brave the front lines in a crisis that's still escalating. Many of the blazes are out of control and beyond anyone's experience. In a town in Victoria, a ghostly scene... Cars burnt and grey with
5: ash. UK scientists are saying the bushfires in Australia are a warning of what may be to come around the world.
4: A new study of wildfires around the world, from the Amazon rainforest to California, says human activity is raising temperatures and adding to the threat.
2: Our story starts in Wollombay, a small country town located two hours north of Sydney, where Robin de Crepney owns a property. You turn off at Pitts Ridge and you go through quite nice undulating country,
1: but all of a sudden you dip down into this valley, and it's the bottom of the Hunter, Hunter Valley. You drive through these beautiful green valleys and you've got the, the mountains on either side and then there are other little people sort of scattered around. Then you go get to this town called Wollongbae, which is a beautiful historic town. It's been really beautifully restored. The sort of people that go there live there because they love the environment they love the the kind of community where you can have somewhere
2: beautiful that's isolated but you're not in anyone else's pocket robin is a writer and her husband is a composer 17 years ago they were looking for a quiet weekend bush retreat so they could escape the hustle and bustle of inner city sydney they spent almost two decades building their getaway At the beginning of this episode, she tells a story about nearly losing her place to fire. It was saved then, but then came 2019. We knew the gospel fires were coming coming down. Robin was at her home in Sydney.
1: I was here watching in Sydney, watching the map, because I kept being told by people, it's better you don't come up. So even as landowners, they didn't want us coming up. So I kept saying, can I come? how yeah, can I come? And eventually they said, no, the roads are closing. It's better leave it to the fire department. So we kept thinking, oh, it's going to be OK, it's going to be OK. And the last time I called them, I said, I'm just rechecking. You do know I have this property, or these houses up there. You do know that it's on the top of that mountain and you are sure that the fire will go up if anything happens. She said yes to all of those things. And then I said, OK, I'll agree not to come. Because she'd said, the roads are closed. You probably won't even get through. And I thought, I'll get through
2: if I want to. You always can. While Robin feared for her house, she'd been receiving updates from a communications centre organised by the local fire brigades. But this was no ordinary communications hub. This was about as Australian as it gets.
1: They set up a, a, what do you call it, like a ground control in the pub. So the pub was the place where everyone would go for information. They called it the pub hub. They could get a meal there and the fireys would come in and, you know, share information and stuff. Uh, one particular woman was doing it, so the, land, the line was always open. And you could call in there and say, what should I do? Where should I go? Where's the fire now? And they'd give you all the, the stuff. That
2: particular woman was Kathy Brooks. We've lived up here for about three years
6: now and my husband and I purchased the pub just over 12 months ago. The pub is Wollombay Tavern. Um, very historical place. It's the home of Dr Jerd's Jungle Juice. Um, Mel Jurd was the original, well, he, not the original um, license, the pub owner, but he used to run this as a wine bar and at the end of the night he would throw all the dregs into a baby bath and then he would bottle that and sell that off as jungle
2: juice. It's a little bit more refined than that now. Cathy estimates that there are about 400 permanent residents in the local area of Wollumbin. Cathy's friends, Charles and Amanda, are local RFS volunteers.
3: Charles, senior deputy captain, Wollumbin volunteer bushfire brigade. We had four fires going at one stage. There was the Owendale fire, which is to the north, Little El to the west, Crump's to the east. And there was the Gospers fire coming in around to the south. So all sides of this village were threatened. Quite nerve-wracking.
2: Charles has been fighting fires here for over 20 years.
3: I think this is the worst uh, we've seen here uh, ever. What's its records have been kept?
7: I think the majority of people yes. were driving around with chainsaws in the back of their cars. Yes. Um, if yeah. they had utes, they had chainsaws in the back of their utes, plus water tanks, plus pumps. So yeah, everybody was fairly uh, on edge. Mm. You didn't hear from somebody mm. or see them over a few days. You'd go out looking for
6: them. Yeah. We'd been threatened with these two fires for quite a few weeks before they actually hit because they were lightning strikes in dense bushland, so no-one
2: could get in there to um, put them out. Once the fires made it to town, the focus changed from putting out fires to protecting houses.
6: A lot of the... All the businesses in town basically closed during the fire and we made the decision to stay open because the pub does tend to be the centre and I don't say that lightly, but it does tend to be the centre when something drastic happens, for instance when we had the floods, this is where everyone comes to get their information. Um, So we stayed open. We gave the staff the opportunity to not come in if they wanted to, but they all did, Um, and I said this a few times, we'd never been able to stay open if it hadn't been for the staff being just so committed and so good
8: dreaming of a blue sunny day I could see all the mountains As the smoke flew away Then another grey day Fit for choking and burning your eyes And a hot night was falling From a bloody red sky all the sirens and choppers and yeah. Yeah. wait without yeah. end no. No, I miss my wife and no. kids right I yeah. yeah. yes. anyway. want to see yeah. them again yeah. Yeah.
6: It initially started as a meeting with these fires because with the RFS they decided to set up a communications kiosk out the front to give people information so people weren't calling into the fire shed constantly for information. So we set up the kiosk kit, which we had open every day, and we had up-to-date
7: maps. Um, we had a big TV screen with the Fires Near Me
6: app, On people were calling in and um, saying, you know, is it OK, can I get through? Even when we closed, people would... We closed the kiosk, people were still coming in to get information. So. And, and and they were coming in to get information from each other as well, and to, to see who whose place was now under threat, and had they saved that property. course people were just not to speak specifically to the RFS, but just for ringing the pub to go to say, is the road open, can I get through? If I come through, will I be able to get out? Um, yeah, it's just, it just sort of built. It just, yeah. People were aware that we were open, and it was just the focal point to come to. It was hectic
2: in that there was so much information that was flying in and out all day. The pub quickly became more than a communications hub. It acted as a community centre.
6: The pub was providing the meals for the um, RFS strike teams that were going out. And there
7: were also a lot of people were cooking and making meals down ooh. to the RFS. So it was a great community spirit. The community spirit was fantastic.
6: The donations that were coming in because we were running out. We had no room at the fire shed, so they were coming in here. Um, and then they were sort of... Um, Distributed from the pub. People were coming in and putting $500 on the bar and saying that's for RFS members to.
2: And,
6: yeah, and the Black Ops, yeah, 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 to get a free drink.
2: Hang on, did she just say Black Ops? We're going to get into that shortly. People that
6: haven't seen for years in, from Sydney were messaging me, going, How do I donate?
2: I want to buy a keg for the RFS. I love that outsiders thought that the thing firefighters needed most was a beer. The pub became such an important part of the firefighting operations in the area that the firefighters took serious measures to protect it.
6: We had three New South Wales fire and rescue trucks parked in town at one stage um, and their brief was to protect the pub. Only because that was the fire that was going to threaten the pub.
2: The pub even hosted an unlikely event in the midst of the chaos. Amanda Clymer was an author of historical fiction and she was supposed to be releasing a book in December, but the fires had effectively cancelled most celebrations in the area. The book's called The Girl and the Painting
7: uh, and it came out on December 16th, which was, we were right in the middle of uh, everything happening here. Um, And because the other restaurants were closed, um, I couldn't have a book launch. We were also obviously encouraging people not to come to Mumbai because we didn't want them to be trapped here. Everything was cancelled. Um, and then I got my box of books from the publisher. So I bought them down here and we had a couple of drinks and uh,
2: we launched the book here. <laughs> <laughs> this type of community reaction wasn't a surprise to Cathy.
6: Everyone just sort of pitched in and did what they had to do. I was impressed. I I didn't expect, in retrospect, I didn't expect it to be any different. I assumed that that's what makes a small country town is
2: that sort of thing. But there was something else going on. As people were evacuating their homes and leaving them vulnerable to fires, an unofficial local initiative formed to protect the properties.
3: Uh, Brian and Shelley in Stockyard Creek. Uh, Now, Brian's been in the brigade for 30 years. Brian and Sally were in there. Mudbrick House, pretty well prepared. They were calling Triple O and said, we need help, we need help, we need help. Um, And they got a call from the police to say, stop calling Triple O because you're annoying them. The RFS wouldn't send any tankers in there. There's no communications. The uh, mosquitoes turned up. And Lisa, you, you know the story yeah. about the mosquitoes, right? Uh, they turned up, and helped Brian, kept the, uh, the fire away from his property, and Alan next door and Ashley uh, won this way and saved those properties.
2: Mosquitoes. What's he talking about? The Black Ops sort of mosquito squadron.
9: Black Ops is not just stay and defend, it's stay and defend other people's property.
10: Uh, I'm PJ Wallace. I work in a food van. Well, I can tell you how I, how I got into the Black Hops was more the fact that a friend of mine had a property up at Stockyard Creek. Mm. Uh, they were out there by themselves. They came into town very freaked out. I was like, well, we'll come out and help, you know, see what we can do. We got out there and put out what we could of the fires. We were waiting on the RFS to arrive, but unfortunately, because of the comms, they weren't able to come out there for safety reasons as well to get out there. So it just started with a bunch of friends trying to help friends' properties from burning down, you know, and then, sure enough, we ended up with these rigs and people started donating things and people had these palacons with water that they were able to use and we got phone calls to say, you know, look, it's getting close to our property, are you able to come out and just help? Um, then it just got like bigger and bigger and bigger and we were able to put a lot of the, you know, yeah. a lot of people's minds at ease, I guess. Um, it's scary if you're in the middle of nowhere and there's absolutely nothing but bush around you for kilometres.
2: When the fires came through the valley, PJ watched the population of Wollumbia evacuate and dropped to just 100 people.
10: The 100 people that were left here did everything in their power to save the places. Some people didn't even know the properties that, their works that sure, were they were, you no, know. I found properties I never knew existed.
9: Exactly. I'm young and I'm one of the ringleaders of Black Ops. I'm a horticulturalist, I work at a wholesale nursery. The first fire I went out with with PJ. We had neighbours down the road. They came out to find out information, and they won't. They weren't allowed back in again to defend their properties. And I was oh, fuck that. And it was fuck that. Next morning. Carl phones me, he's with RFS, he's sitting up at our mountain and he said, the mountain's going up, we're sitting here, she's burning. And, and our neighbour's property was just at the bottom of that hill. I find them and said, do you want to go and defend? So I said, I've got the rig, the 6 wheeler. there she is, got her... And I've got a crew if you yeah. want to go. And, he said, oh, and she said, oh, I'll talk to my partner. And she phoned me back and she said, yeah, we do want to. I said, well, don't stop at the roadblocks. Just keep going. And we did. We did. We, did. So cool. we went through and we Pretty saved that property.
2: The RFS volunteers can't save every house or property that's at risk of being burnt down. So the renegade crew of Black Ops Mosquito Fighters act when RFS volunteers aren't allowed to.
4: G'day, mate. I'm Carl. I'm Merce mover. I'm a firefighter, you know. I've been out there every day that I wasn't at work, you know, out there fighting fires. You know, the RFS, yes, God bless them, they are looking out for the safety of their members, you know, like, it's too dangerous, get out. And I've been in that situation a number of times, as an RFS and on fires. It's about just being safe, you know. And then the thing is with the Black Ops, you know, the Black Ops Mosquito, We will push that boundary just that little bit more.
10: If we decide as individuals we can take this on and we will stand and whatever, that is completely up to us. That has got nothing to do with any liabilities. We have ourselves taken on the choice to stay.
2: Like Carl, many Black Ops crew are also RFS members. To them, it doesn't matter whether they're wearing the yellow shirt of the RFS or the blue shirt of the mosquitoes. Their work is about protecting family and friends. The amazing thing
8: here was, is that when our RFS people, and this is community, when our RFS people got out of their yellows, people like Carl just put on a, a blue shirt and he was on the back of the ute and a land cruiser and they are still on black ops ratty shit. There was power cons on the back of the utes, there was firefighter pumps on the back of the utes and they didn't stop. And then on Tuesday or Monday, they'll just back in RFS in yellow. What we went through when it's a firestorm, when when that come through our valley, um, like a banshee. When it come through here, yeah. as a community or as a family, we just rallied, and, yeah. and just nothing else mattered.
2: I know what you might be wondering: Is it worth putting your life at risk for a home that could be rebuilt? but it's not like these people didn't know what they were doing.
10: We might have been like a renegade, little bunch of people well, with their no, cars we going out, really but go we, were, we were really well set up. We were very oh, yeah. smart with what we had. We all had the proper equipment. So we had gloves donated, goggles donated. We had the P2 masks. It wasn't like we were running out there, bare legs, bare hands, fighting fires. We actually had quite a lot of proper equipment donated yeah. to us um, to use.
0: What's your setup for your, 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 your trucks and your units and cars and things? Can you describe oh, yeah, what you've got
9: there? A chainsaw, a blower.
0: Oh, well, we, had we, had can, we, we can carry 2,000
9: litres of water. We can draft. We can um, pump out of two hoses. Got radio. Radios were donated. $5,000 of radios were donated to us.
2: So why are they called Mosquitoes.
4: Because no, we're fucking annoying. No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh, the out. RFS, the RFS actually <laughs> nicknamed
9: <laughs> named, RFS named it. the
4: RFS actually named Black Ops. <laughs> Black Ops because yeah.
8: we're just everywhere. But just I had a so go. so quick and so mobilised. And
10: every time and they, they got to a property, property, there was one of us there already.
3: How how many people do you think were involved in the Black Ops?
10: I think it's about sixty-five,
9: and it goes from broke to buckety. But the Black Ops also believe there are
2: renegade groups like them all over Australia. Well, There's mothers everywhere. They are not wrong. They are so prolific that one of the changemaker producers, Ben Keating, formed a similar group called the Boree Pirate Bushfire
5: Brigade. Boree is a tiny, isolated hamlet, it's a remote valley deep in the heart of Yango National Park. We had our own bulldozer cutting fire breaks, tractors with ploughs doing the same, high-powered leaf blower teams clearing leaves from the fire trails surrounding us in the National Park, doing everything we could to slow the passage of fire and save pockets of bush and ultimately our houses. And we worked brilliantly as a team. We had countless nights with just us residents managing the fire. And then there were nights of backburning operations where we were dealing with a fire line well over a kilometre long. Not a house was lost, and most of the valley floor did not burn due to our efforts. The Boree Pirate Bushfire Brigade had come. To- Laguna RFS did eventually come to the valley and were just superb, a godsend, and we'll be forever thankful. But for many weeks, both before and after they came, we dealt with it ourselves.
2: Back in Wollongby, the mosquitoes were lucky enough to be able to coordinate their missions from the pub hub.
10: During the times of the fire, especially up Yango Creek, oh, when it was be. very fierce, they um, they lost all their internet and they lost all their phone lines. We don't have mobile phone reception out here. So it was really important to coordinate and all meet at one point so that we could work out what was going on. And here, this pub was it because... You know, without information or without knowing how far the fires are, you could see the smoke, you could smell it, you knew that it was close, but you had no concept of just how close it was without internet. So everyone would come here to meet, we'd all find out exactly what was going on, and then we would take the appropriate equipment and disperse and help.
2: As prepared as they were, it didn't make their work any less dangerous.
4: I knocked off work at 6 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and then I got called out, that night. That very night, you know. And then, boom, out there, met another bloke. Three homes. Three homes we saved that night. Yeah. Three friggin' homes. That and man, it was what? like pulled up to this this house. And I said, man, there's friggin' flames lapping up underneath the house. We've got to do shit. We've got to act uh, now. You know, we were it There's no one else but us. Two of us. What two of us. Say, so we just running and hosed the house down. There's steam coming off the side of the house. Finally got things under control as such. And then a tree yeah, fell nice. down. I went, oh shit, because you don't hear or see, you know, the tree or What's whatever. That's all of there. Then all of a sudden, I heard bloody boof, um, boof, boof, just this, just this thing coming down and I uh, we didn't know what it was, didn't know where it was, because it was night time. There was a rock rolling down the hill. A massive, big rock, massive rock. And I was just sitting there and I said, fucking run, mate, just run. Get in front of the truck, get in front of the whatever, you know, just hide, and the rock bounced off and landed from where your girlfriend is. And that's the dangers of of being out there, man, you know?
2: Well, if you hadn't guessed it already, most of these interviews were done in the pub. Sadly, the RFS and Black Ops couldn't protect all the homes in the valley. At the time of interview, the Black Ops crew thought 21 properties had been lost. This number would have been a lot more if it wasn't for the combined efforts of these brave renegades and the RFS volunteers. Yes, we
9: are fucking special. Yes, but we aren't. That's everyone's going underground about this shit and I'm like fucking proud <laughs> as punch.
2: <laughs> I am. So what does all this have to do with Robin and her weekend property in Wollombay? She was good. She rang every day
6: just sort of to get an update what's happening and I think the Black Ops guys were up there helping to fight
2: that one because we couldn't get the trucks up onto his run. Robin Dyer, Robin's neighbours, who have lived in the area for 30 years. Our reporter Mark didn't interview them in person when he was in Wollongby because they were too busy fighting fires. Instead, the interview was conducted over the phone at a later date. It can be hard to hear, but what he has to say is amazing. I'm
0: Di, and I'm Robert Williamson. But I'm mainly a life coach, really, um, and an energetic healer. We were a side fringe of the mosquito ops. We, I, I personally didn't fight any fires with them, but my son did.
2: According to Robin Dye, the day the fires were approaching Robin's property was a high alert day.
0: It was a very high intensity day and uh, you know, there was uh, fire services going
1: everywhere. Dye, who lives at the bottom of the hill, she works with the real estate agent and she'd actually taken the day off because she said she was worried because the fires were getting close to their place. They were worried um, and they weren't going to leave. They were prepared. And she said she woke up in the morning and she'd, um, no, sorry, they'd gone up in the morning to check our place and they'd come back. And then during the day, she kept saying to Rob, You know, I feel really uncomfortable about this. So I just don't know what it is. I've got a bad feeling. Let's just go and have a drive around. And what they were used to doing, and they used to do this at night, and so did a lot of the residents in the community, they'd drive around at night because you could see at night if a fire was taking, if a house was going up or if it was getting near a house. Whereas in
2: the daytime, it's not always as easy to see through the smoke. So Rob, Di, and their 19-year-old daughter, Abby, jumped in the car.
0: My daughter, really, she just sensed the urgency and she didn't even bother getting changed. She was in these tiny little jean shorts and a singly T-shirt top. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And uh, and basically her little boots. And um, she had no protective gear on.
1: They drive up the drive. They get to the gate, and Darren, <laughs> who is our plumber, with his son Malaki, uh, are driving home from the Gosper fires because he's uh, a volunteer but has his own fire truck, small fire truck, and he's he'd been fighting the fires all day and he was coming home. And they
2: just come together exactly the right moment. It's the first miracle <laughs> of timing. So Rob, Di, and Darren bump into each other at the gate, and Darren and Malachi decide to go with them to Robin's house. Darren said, "What are
1: you doing?" And they said, "Oh, we're just going up to check up on the ridge, to see Robin's place. We're a bit worried." And he said, oh, "Oh, I've got time. I'll follow you up." So suddenly we have a, a fire truck actually going up, and when they get there, they find that the fire has completely encircled the two the house and studio, and it's roaring. So, they drove right into the middle of this circle and started fighting it.
0: Sure enough, the fire was
2: line is a clearing or firebreak made with a tool called a McLeod rake. On one side it's a rake, on the other side it's a hoe. It is fast and exhausting work. I came
0: up against a tree that would have been a, a break in the line, I, I, which would have allowed the plane through, and I went to pick this tree bit up, which was bloody heavy, and I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that on my own. Well, as it turns out, I kept going, and my daughter went back, Tree, well, it was old tree, and she threw it into the into the area of the flame on her own. Um, she said she near passed out doing it, <laughs> uh, and she's she's all of about five foot five. And um, anyway, she found the strength and managed to you know draw that flame downhill, which gave um, dye. Yeah. Um, it gave them a chance to fight the flame get and get some water on the house and start clearing debris um, without the other fire drawing it up.
2: Abby then used her phone with one bar of service to send text messages to ask for help. One of those texts went to Joe, a lodger in Robin's studio who had already evacuated.
1: She called the fire brigade, and they said. They couldn't go up because it was it's a dead end and they're not allowed to under their fire and safety um, conditions.
2: If the fire gets behind you, you can't get out. I think that's the logic. Another of Abby's text messages went to her 17-year-old brother Tom, who was down the hill at the time.
1: No, we don't get reception up there. We never get reception up there. No-one does. So she tried texting and she texted her brother Tom, who was down at Scotty's who was also with another neighbour, Nick and she said, we're on fire, you know, get out and Nick had a truck which had what, those square boxes of water and he had a couple of those on the back of his truck so they came up, so there's two more people and then they contacted, on the way they contacted the chef <laughs> this is this where community comes in, the chef from the, um, the one of the cafes in the in, in Wollombi, who just happened to be free and had come home. <laughs> I don't know whether he was going back to work afterwards or not but he came home. I don't think they knew that the fire trucks couldn't come until they'd already got up there. So now we've got four men, one woman and three kids, <laughs> teenagers, all up there fighting. Mm-hmm. What is the possibility you know the, the the odds of that occurring all those people being able to meet each other be able to call each other and actually get through on their phones and muster eight people to get to a mountaintop which even the fire brigade said it was too you know dangerous to go up
0: and we all- Shifted to the our attention to the other house, and you couldn't see between the two houses. Then the smoke was just red, and the flames were large, and it, you know, they just default the fo- all that flame from both sides
1: And the fact that it was on either side of the ridge is unusual because usually it comes up one side and you can run down the other. But it had come along the side so that it was actually on both sides, which is why it took eight people. And basically they had the fire trucks on the, fir- on the bottom house, which was in most danger, and the others went up and started preparing around the, the other one. Like the garden hose was holding the fire back once the fire truck, the force of the fire truck had taken the main flames out and then the garden hose, the kids were using that to put out the, the logs and, and things that were right near the house. Because the smoke was so thick, they couldn't see very much. They could just see the flames. They kept calling to each other, like, you know, Tom, where are you? You right?" And he'd go back, I'm on the balcony, I'm holding it, it's okay. You know, and, Andy, where are you? So there were these voices constantly going through the roar of the, the fire. Um, calling out to each other to sort of check in to make sure nobody was in in trouble, and they were basically sort of gradually backing up, you know, to the escape route. And Di said at one point she worked, looked around and saw the fire on either side of where she'd parked the car, and she went, oh, "What are we gonna do?" And then she went, "Oh, fuck it, it's insured." And it went on hosing. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs>
2: but even a strong machine can feel like it's met its match. There were two
1: occasions where Darren said, we've got to let it go, we can't save it. And they didn't let it go, they kept fighting. those four people fought for, what well, I think it was like three hours or something. And they finally
2: saved both buildings. There was nothing left except the buildings. For Robin, the news that Di and her family had saved her house came as a surprise.
1: Uh, no, I didn't talk to Di until the whole thing was over. Oh. I got a text saying, the fire did take your property, but your neighbours have saved your house and I'm sitting at a dinner table having a Christmas dinner and it was like, oh, my God, while they're fighting to save my house. It was just terrible. Can you imagine the guilt
2: you feel? And you never get over it, I promise you. It's terrible. As guilty as Robin felt, she was also able to recognise that this was the community that she'd grown to love.
1: It's an extraordinary thing, and particularly as they didn't know me that well. It was just, I mean, I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. And I wouldn't ever forget it for the rest of my life even if they hadn't been able to be successful because it's such an extraordinary gesture of just um, generosity and goodwill. And whenever I say to die, but it was incredible what she did, she said, oh, well, that's just what you do. You know, someone's in trouble and everyone goes there. And you fix it up and then you move on. And there's no big ceremony about it, you know
2: indeed when asked Rob tried to downplay the gesture
0: for me um, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal I was just doing enabling things that I felt comfortable doing I had lots of experience with fire and we've been fire trained we've done our basic firefighting courses and so forth was up the fire that we were going to be perishing in ourselves. It didn't have the intensity of heat that would have exploded
2: the house. Rob says there's a reason why the Black Ops crew are so effective.
0: There were a lot of fire crews in the area that had never had any experience here. It does help having that local knowledge.
1: It, it creates a kind of new level of humanity, doesn't it? Because none of us are doing it for any, for any game. But I think uh, it's what's happening all over the country.
3: What does it feel like when you, um,
2: when you do save a house? <laughs> I
3: imagine that would be good. <laughs> uh, the job's done.
2: By the time we'd finished recording this episode, the Woolloombeye community was safe. At least for this season. In the second part of this bushfire series, our reporter Mark Isaacs travels to Batemans Bay on the south coast of New South Wales, about four hours south of Sydney, to explore how communities rebuild after the devastation of one of the most ferocious bushfire seasons ever.
4: We thought we had it easy here. Down, down south down there, they and poor bastards down there, I freaking feel sorry for them, man. What's going on down there is horrific. Yeah.
8: When I look at me kids and I hold them back, the tear in me eye. Cause I don't have an answer. When they finally ask why. But we stick to our guns and our drums and each other and this valley is our home. And the powers that shouldn't be. fucking leave us alone. <laughs>
2: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is series four, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. These two episodes on bushfires were written by Mark Isaacs, with script editing from Amanda Tattersall and Charles Firth. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. The song we use in the episode was a recording by a Woolloomby local, Brian Dillon. Brian cleans the pub, and is the town's local snake catcher, tracker, muso and stay-at-home dad. He wrote that song on New Year's Eve. His week-old baby had been evacuated, but he stayed to fight the fires. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. Changemakers has a new weekly online training about community organising designed for these pandemic times. It focuses on relationships, building connection and the art of changemaking. Check it out on our website, www.changemakerspodcast.org under the training tab.